Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Susanna Constantine, and this is my wardrobe malfunction, a podcast for anyone who wears clothes, anyone who's interested in them, and anyone who isn't. So basically, everyone. This is the second episode of season six, which means if you're just joining us, you've 41 episodes to catch up on. Here, Nadine Coyle telling us about falling off stage, Georgia Toffolo giving us some granny chic, and Reverend Richard Coles revealing the most hilarious insult I've ever heard. Later in this episode, we've got a musical treat from our house band duo, a track from their brand new album, Gig in Your Garden. But let's get on to today's guest. She's journalist, presenter, podcaster, and now jewellery designer, Kate Thornton. And I think of my special guest so far, her wardrobe malfunction is possibly the finest of all. So let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors, and find out what's inside. Hello, everybody. So today I am delighted to welcome Kate Thornton, journalist, presenter, podcaster, and now jewellery designer, Kate. I've I've looked at um, BB Bijou. Katie now, yeah, but... Um, they- but it's so fab. Oh, do you know what? I'm so glad you said that. I was really nervous about you having a look. No, seriously, it is so fab. It's exactly the kind of stuff I like because it's it's simple, but it looks really well made and it's affordable. Yeah, I mean, that's always been the struggle uh, from the moment I got involved with this. I just said, like, I'm not just going to turn up and wear stuff that somebody else has designed. I've got yeah. to have massive input. It's got to be quality and it's got to be affordable. You know, that sort of, weird stage where you think uh, have I got something else in me is there something else is there more to me than walking and talking yeah pretty much what I've spent the majority of my professional (laughs) life doing and um and I think there's a massive part of all of us that have this you know these segments in our brain that just aren't tapped into yeah but honestly last night I was sat there thinking oh no Suzanne's gonna look at my jewelry collection it's like it's like handing it into uh your your favorite tutor at the end of a degree (laughs) Well, I do loads of these really silly tests. Can I sleep in it? Can I shower in it? All that stuff. But I think that's so important. I mean, because I, I love I love jewellery, but I like simple jewellery. And I like jewellery that I don't have to take off ever. Because if I have to take it off, then I lose it. Totally. Sometimes it's nice to have foundation pieces um, that you can then layer. But you never have to really remove those foundation pieces. But equally, those pieces should be doing a lot of work on their own if you've not layered or mm. over the top of them. Mm. I've, I've had so much fun playing. And especially in a time when we're not really dressing up. Yeah. I've just been like a magpie in lockdown. Yeah. Clasps and stones. And and now I'm wearing this. Um, this just arrived this morning. We're shooting this next week. It's my first T-shirt that I'm wearing. Oh, read my lips. What a great slogan. This is, I'm sorry, I'm literally pushing my bosom in your face right that's, now. That's so fine. I love bosoms. You know that. This is a lovely lady that I, I came across on Instagram. She's called Gina Potter. And she literally, she and her husband work from their kitchen in Bangor. And they do these beautiful lip designs. And I really loved her stuff. So I bought a piece. Then we started chatting. And I said, you're to collaborating. And this one is all of the, the, the names of some of my favourite love songs. And then we do another version, which is Words to Live By, which is things like, you know, walk tall, um, you know, straight yeah. shoulders back. It's kind of words of wisdom, I suppose. It's fantastic. And it's a good shape because it's slightly fitted and the neckline is, is just going down below the collarbone, which is really flattering. Exactly. The neckline's so hard to get right. And also, you'll appreciate this, uh, this bit here. Yeah. Uh, so around the side panels... We're just looking at bat fat now. Back fat, right? Because it's a yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> you grow fat in places you never even bothered to look. <laughs> exactly. It's only when you see yourself in some horrific angle on television and you go, oh, 
did I leave like a pair of knickers in my bra? (laughs) 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 Now, my love, let's wind the movie back a little bit. You were born in Cheltenham. Did you grow up there? Okay. But not in the posh bit. Okay. What were your parents doing? And do you have brothers and sisters? I've got one brother who's okay, a okay. fighter. Is he? Yes. <gasps> so my, my brother's called James and he's 18 months younger than me. My mum and dad um, are children born and bred. Uh, my dad worked um, as an engineer in a factory at night. And my mum had a variety of jobs when we were growing up to fit in around looking after us. She was our dinner lady for a while at school. Yeah. Um, and she worked at Sainsbury's um, and then she went on to run an office for a scaffolding company until she retired. Yeah. Um, they, my dad would work nights and my mum would work days. So that enabled there to always be somebody at home for us. And they were mm-hmm. such a team. I mean, we are a blue collar working class family mm-hmm. and they kind of strived for a little bit more. I suppose we were the, they were the only ones that bought property at their brothers and sisters. They were the first ones off the block rather than not the only ones. Um, and, you know, that went abroad. I remember when we went abroad on the coach, uh, when I was seven, we went to the south of France. Everyone, it, it was the talk of, like, have you seen our Dennis and Sandra taking those nippers? I think once we got a, a hovercraft, they were like, we're on a bloody hovercraft. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Cheltenham, yeah. which is a beautiful part of the world. So your parents, hardworking parents, and that was clearly instilled into you because you were doing, you were working from the age of 12, weren't you? You were finding jobs and you understood that if you wanted something, you had to get off your little butt, get out there. And, and get the money for yourself. Totally. So, like, by the age of twelve, I was obsessed with ballroom dancing. So, ballroom dancing was quite big in the area that I lived, um, and dance classes were, you know, I mean, we didn't have a lot of money, and so I used to go to this this dance class every Saturday morning at the Freddie Clark School of Dance. So um, I struck a deal with them because I really wanted to do as many, many classes as I possibly, possibly could to get better at ballroom and Latin American dancing. So my trade was um, that I would teach the toddlers, kind of, you know, like the three and four year olds, like the basic cha-cha and jive and a, a bit of waltz on a really early on a Saturday morning. And then I could stay at the school for the rest of the day and have my classes, which I just thought was amazing and then not far down the road from from where the dance school was my auntie jill has still to this day has a hairdressing salon called the beauty box and literally there's nine there's nine cousins on that side of the family who've all had saturday jobs there and we were all the champion girls and you know so you go and you work for our jill that's what yeah what are in our family i'm okay yeah yeah okay jill yeah. And then our Lindsay came in afterwards, and then our Joanne. And, and then we've all been through this. It's like a rite of passage where you yeah. sit there, you make tea, you shampoo hair, you learn how to serve people and be a part of a team. And it was a brilliant, brilliant education and work for tips. So. Yeah. And so, did you, when did you develop an interest in clothes and uh, as a child? I mean, did, did you have, you must have had an interest in the ballroom dancing clothes. Well, ballroom dancing clothes. I mean, I had like I would look longingly at uh, you know any 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 images I could get hold of of these amazing sort of slinky ballroom female ballroom dancers and their amazing dresses, the kind of stuff that you know you see now on Strictly. Um, and we we obviously you know those those dresses cost a few quid. My mum would save with my dad, and they would buy me the second hand version so but these were always from women who were much older than me so I was like 12 and you'd have these big conical bra <laughs> that literally because I had no boobs you could poke and it would just leave a hole yeah and then I remember I thought I said to my mum once where did you get these from I mean there's some hideous pictures and I would go and compete in these dresses feeling like you know I mean like and my mum's an amazing seamstress so she would take everything and alter it yeah, yeah. Good. but I had this really quite horrific orange and black sequined latin dress that the sort of dress that if you did a big spin in it and you you did the chop you could make the dress stay up like they do in yeah, yeah. I loved it so much it was horrific I look back now I had a <laughs> cat butcher and like a chocolate like orange. orange, and I look like you know, an eighty-five-year-old woman competing in a beauty pageant in the dress. The dresses were, and they all smelled cut musty. And and I sort of look back now, and I think maybe 
were they from people who've passed away? Oh my <laughs> like my. they were that old. <laughs> oh, oh my but I, I just, I mean, how did you develop this um, love of ballroom dancing at su such a young age? Had anyone in your family done it? It's such a random thing. Yeah, well, it wasn't growing up then because, like, boys did rugby or the football and girls went to dance classes and it was quite yeah. cool. And you, you started out doing a little bit of ballet and then if you sustained an interest, for me, it was, a, it was, my, it was my weekly form of exercise, I guess. Uh, I was crap at sport at school, but I loved to dance. And I loved the way dancing made me feel. It was, you know, yeah. strictly, you know, that once you nail it. You know what? I, I never nailed it. And I loved every minute of it, apart from the dancing, which I fucking loathed. <laughs> I, I mean, I was lucky enough to be okay at dancing. And we would do these local competitions. And my mum and dad, God love them, would drive me to like Birmingham to compete. Yeah. Uh, and then I joined, um, disco was just sort of happening then. And we, I joined the disco class and a, a formation disco team called the Scalamanders. And, and this is like the clothing was, uh, I've still got pictures somewhere. I had, we were all in white full cat suits, like full length, you know. Mm -hmm. um, my mum would sew, my mum was in a brilliant with a needle and thread. She would sew on all these sequins in silver mm. and black. It's quite Elvis. Oh, totally. And then I had, um, sequined leg warmers and we would dance barefoot and it was and I never felt more alive than I did in that horrific get up no I I'm sorry I think that sounds amazing that get up the sequined leg warmers I've never seen a pair of those before and they, these kind of like um the, the these sort of glove things that would sit on um a hook around you so fingerless so that when you went like this and you pulled like sort of John Travolta moves in front of your eyes, your, <laughs> eyes, your hands glittered. Oh, sounds so amazing. But you were, so you were very young at this stage and um, you've been very honest about your teenage years mm. and where you were horrifically bullied at school, which then led to anorexia and body dysmorphia. So did the, um, did the dancing help that? It did, yeah. It definitely did because it enabled me to see that you know, my body was changing for sure. That was without, you know, that's just your right of passage as you crash into puberty. Mm. The dancing did help. It was purely because it was somewhere safe for me to escape to. I loved music. It played into my love of music. Mm. I pretty much on my own. I, I would get in, I'm, I, I guess I'm, I, you know, I've realised now at this stage and age of my life, I have obsessive tendencies. So when I do something, I really do it. So mm. when I danced, I really danced. So I would get in from mm. school, finish my homework, and then go and lock myself away with the, the, the family hi-fi stereo. Yeah. My, my disco music on and just rehearse all night until I went to sleep. Yeah. I was quite obsessive. And then as I progressed and, you know, it was quite, it's, it's, it's really distressing when you start to see your body change and you don't like the changes. And I really didn't like the changes. So then I became quite self-conscious. Um, mm. so that obsession moved to a different place and I stopped loving clothes you know I always used to save furiously so I could my mum ran the Freeman's catalogue on our estate which mm. is a way of her making a bit of extra money and you know our door was always ringing with, with kids dropping off their mum's club money mm. and and then I get to choose something out of the catalogue once mm. in a while and I, it would be so giddy and I'd save up my hairdressing Saturday job money to go into town and go to Tammy Girl or whatever it mm. was. Um, and then I started to lose interest in clothes because I hated my body and all I wanted to do was disguise my shape and my form. And then actually when I got very thin, it became a desire to disguise for a different reason because I didn't want to get caught out. I didn't want anyone to see how small I'd become because they might stop me. So for you, because from, I mean, there's so much um, anorexia around at the moment. You know, I have friends whose daughters are, are suffering and it's just, it's horrendous. Well, daughters, you know, I have a little boy that is really, really <sighs> horribly aware of weight and abs and muscle and he's 12. Yeah, it's, it's really tough but I think so for you that from what I understand and I ain't no expert but anorexia can come about when like you say you don't like the shape your body 
is turning into, which is that kind of when you reach puberty and it's almost like you want to cling on to your childhood and you're scared. The idea of becoming a woman is frightening. No, not at all. It was just I was I was I, in my eyes I was fat. Okay. And, that. and you know, I was, you know, at that point coming out of, you know, the, the ballroom scene, for example, anybody that you looked up to. Yeah. Had you know, it's all about elegant lines and you're surrounded mm. by these kind of swan-like beings, you know, mm. so elegant and beautiful. Or the disco dancers in skin tight lycra, you know, there's not there's nowhere to hide. You mm. know, they're like leggings. It's you know, what's what's that saying? There are three things that don't lie: children, drunk people, and leggings. Well, like mm. I'd put into that as well. Mm. Um, and so I was, and also I was being really quite badly bullied at school. And a lot of the jibes, a lot of what started it was about my size. So I figured that if I shrank, all those problems would go away. I'd like myself, and they'd leave me alone. Mm. And then it became in a. In a period that felt very horribly out of control for me it became about control and and, from, and I think that anorexia and bulimia are very much about people trying to grapple control and mm. their world feels horribly out of control so do you think it stems specifically from the, the bullying like a perfect storm yeah but also I went on to make a documentary about this a few years ago now and it's still up on YouTube and I still probably at least once a week receive a message from somebody who says I've watched it and it's helped. And mm. I explore my journey with, with eating disorders, but also the wider picture. And actually what I found out by going to the Maudsley Hospital in London was that some of, we, some of us are just born predisposed yeah. to those triggers. And, and, and that's me, right? I, it was always there. Something, you know, I could have gone through life without any trigger and so never, true. ever had an issue with food. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but you know what? I, I mean, I never, I would never say that I, I, I'm, I'm thankful that I went through it. But I bloody learned a lot going through. Yeah. Learned about actually having a great sense of willpower is a is a wonderful thing. But I put it into a really negative space. I used it to to help to sort of destroy myself and to start. Mm. I was convinced by a brilliant GP who treated me as a therapist. Mm-hmm. So no prescriptions were written. She just would sit with me and talk. She just said, imagine if you applied all of that hard work, that that willpower, that tenacity into something that's going to have a really positive impact. Like, what do you want to do for a living? And I said, I want to be a journalist. She said, you you can't do that or you're starving your brain of oxygen every day. But imagine if you put this willpower. So she convinced me to transition that drive from from a negative to a positive. And and it it was life-changing advice. That makes, that is, so. I'm going to pass that on to this friend of mine whose daughter is very sick. Yeah, that is, that's, it makes so much sense. And it's such a simple thing because it's like you say, you can't prescribe anything for an eating disorder. And, um, and I think it's one of the hardest things to overcome. I mean, I'm an alcoholic and, you know, I reached a rock bottom and I was able to make changes and go into recovery and la, la, la. But um, with something like, you know, all these things are mental disorders. But with something like anorexia, I think it's it's so much harder from, you know, what I've read and and heard. I mean, listen, I've never been an alcoholic, but I recognise the similarities. Massively yeah. Between, they are addictions. Right? Yeah. You would have those moments of panic when you thought you couldn't drink. Well, that applies to an anorexic when they think they've got to eat and they don't yeah. want to. So true. And then now I, I always become really super mindful of never sharing the things that I did to enable me to not eat, mm. purge, because I don't ever want to be irresponsible in giving somebody a manual or, or like a how-to um, because, because that can be really dangerous. Yeah. But I do recognise that a lot of what you go through as an alcoholic was on there. the secrecy for a start is a shared yeah exactly because the shame is so immense you have to re- you know retreat into a private world which is incredibly lonely it is and every lie is covered with another lie yeah so the, actually you don't even know what the truth is yourself yeah yeah and then that relief of you know for me when it you know my two best friends at school um both called claire confusingly contacted my mum 
and said, we're worried about Kate. They'd seen mm. me changing for games. And up until that point, I literally, everything was baggy and yeah. sealed my shape very well. And my mum had also had concerns. And basically, they, they, they smoked me out. Yeah. And sat Fantastic. me down and staged an intervention. Yeah. Part of me was livid and furious and terrified that I, would, I couldn't carry on as I was. But the other part of me was so exhausted and mm. so ashamed and so mm. sad that they can I mean I'd heard my mum call the Samaritans I'd overheard her on the phone mm. she didn't know who else to talk to and the shame and the guilt to, to this yeah. day I could cry saying it to you now yeah um so I think that again for me it you know I was there was an intervention that came along and I, as much as I didn't know how to stop doing it I just didn't know how I was going to carry on with it either because I I was exhausted. Yeah. You ask yourself, you're going to exhaust yourself. It's just yeah. that. And my grades had slipped at school. And the what I think, I think for me, I always wanted to be successful in a in a profession. I wanted to be a career girl, mm-hmm. which is not something I grew up with in a kind of role models around me. People, you know, my mum had a job and everybody worked, but they weren't careers. Yeah. I had ambitions to be more than that. And this doctor basically said to me, Well, you're never going to do that. You're never going to get the grades you need. No one's going to give you a job because you can't be reliable because you're starving yourself. Yeah. I think the vanity and my ego of the desire to become successful became greater than my desire and my vanity to be thin. So what was your first break in your career as a journalist? Um, Work experience. I I used to do work experience as part of my... uh, So I came to London um, with a suitcase full of Freeman's catalogue clothes. (laughs) Of course. <laughs> that I'd say furiously for. Um, I came to London when I literally just finished my A-levels and I went on to study journalism, a diploma for a year and I had to get a work placement. And um, and that led to me getting a job. But I guess my real, my really big break, I became a columnist, very young, uh, a very young columnist at 20 on Fleet Street, um, writing about youth and current, like youth and music and entertainment. And then from there went over to Smash Hits at 21. And then became editor when you were 22. No, 21. Oh, you were 21, you were editor. Jesus Christ. I mean, that is, I look at my... King, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put me in charge. Unbelievable. Isn't that, that when I look at the kids today, there's, there's no way. I don't know a single young person that would have the where for all to do that today. Do you know what, you say that though, but actually the magazine was predominantly written for teenage girls. You're so right. That makes total sense to have. It made no sense in all the sense. Yeah, exactly. And it made no sense to me that I was the first woman to have been there. Mm. Like, hang on a minute. You've been going how long? And I'm the first woman in this chair? That was, that that, that astonished me. Mm. And then I had to, you know, I remember trying to convince them there that I should be able to enable to put, I really wanted to put the Spice Girls on the cover. Mm. And my publisher's, I'm a really great guy, all male. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, they've got to have another. One. I mean, <laughs> I understood where they were coming from because historically, good-looking boys sold covers for us, right? You know, yeah. issues. We put them on the cover. Girls tended not to sell. Mm-hmm. I'm so convinced that these girls were different, and they did ultimately back me. But I had to, I had to kind of go and put a face forward for it. Yeah. So they were happier to have take that breakup on the cover because it was you you were the first person to announce that weren't you no 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 no. no. I'd got the job and was very excited about starting and and literally within the weeks of me accepting the job and starting take that split up which was terribly unhelpful because they were literally cover gold yeah so I, what I did is I spent like literally the first three or four months in the job just rinsing the demise <laughs> Memorial issue after memorial issue, uh, solo career issues. You know, like oh, here's here's the Mark Owen solo cover, um, here's the Robbie Williams one, um, and and then you know the year the, the kind of book the bookends of that year in pop music were take that broke up by the end of it, everyone was obsessed with girl power. Yeah, remarkable. Yeah, and then it was. I mean, Smash Hits was highly influential because. It broke a lot of new bands, you know, launched them into a career. So do, do you remember any that um, were a, that became well-known when you were working there? Well, the Spice Girls, probably the best. Probably the best, yeah. Lots, actually. I mean, it, you're right, absolutely right. They were like these kind of touchstones 
that you had to hit to get into the charts back then. And it pretty much started with Smash Hits. If you got a good write-up in Smash Hits or Smash Hits paid some attention to you, Radio 1 would probably then playlist you, which probably meant that you'd go into the charts, which meant that you'd end up on top of the pops. And those yeah. were really kind of key touchstones that you needed to, to hit to, 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 to make it into the top 10. Um, so I took that responsibility really quite seriously, you know, about mm. trying to promote new artists and support them and also new writers. But you know what's interesting? Because I did a film uh, last year for the BBC because Smash It would have been 40 years old. And I did it with Kylie Minogue and Henry Holland. And mm -hmm. Henry was a stylist at Smash Hit. But when I was there, we didn't have stylists. Mm. And we wouldn't call in clothes for shoots. Bands would just literally turn up and we'd take their pictures. Really? God, how times have changed. So what was the, what was the craziest outfits that walked through the studio door when you were doing a shoot? But this guy on the cover right at the beginning of the year called Jazz from Babylon Zoo. And it was one of those moments where I was like, we really can't do another take that memorial cover. What else have we got? <laughs> this guy had come from nowhere and gone to number one. And he was really, he was really quite exotic as a pop star. He wore kind of face, you know, face paints and um, it was just out there. And kind of what Smash Hits should have should have always been about. So we 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 put him on the cover. And all I remember is that, you know, literally. He, he looked like the tin man on acid. <laughs> Fantastic. We also did one shoot with Peter Andre. I remember having to shade in his abs. So we body painted him as Superman. And then he wanted some more ab definition. So we literally had to run in on the shoot and, and shade it with some eyeshadow. <laughs> All hands on deck. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, and then with the, um, you moved into TV mm. and you did an ITV current affairs programme. That's right, yeah. I mean, is there anything you haven't done, woman? Um, <laughs> and then you did yeah, a master of none. <laughs> and then you did what was the story about Candle in the Wind when uh, the Princess of Wales died? Well, the day, sadly, the night. So we did this show every Sunday lunchtime, uh, and nobody saw it because it was on against the EastEnders Omnibus, which was brilliant because I could just go and learn about telly. Yeah. But apart from my mum, I don't think anyone watched. Um, and we, were, so, and we would film it down at um, Meridian Television. So it was a network show that came out of the studios in Southampton. So I was living in the Novotel there with Nick Knowles, who was my co-host. And the night before the show, I had the news on quite late. And I saw the news break about Jodie Fayette had passed away mm. and had been injured in this accident. We didn't think that we would be allowed to go on air. We were a bunch of young four hosts really relatively experienced, inexperienced, me, totally inexperienced, mm. uh, you know, seven or eight hours of telly under my belt. Mm. And long story short, ITN decided that they needed the hour that we would have been on air to reconvene, re to, to kind of, you know, recalibrate, I suppose, because, you know, all the ads stopped that day. There were no ad breaks. The whole of the programmes, mm. the whole schedule for the day, with the exception of us that morning, were wiped and it was just rolling news. Mm. And so they decided that we we could go on because we were news and current affairs. And one of the jobs I had was I had to put together a package, a VT package, a video package, to play at the end of the show that celebrated her as a princess of youth causes and young people. Mm. And I'd just got back um, from shooting in Ibiza and Bosnia and I I had no music. All I had in my car was rave music, indie music, and Elton John's greatest hits. And because it was a Sunday, our music library at the studios was was closed, mm. and we couldn't find anyone to open it. And the only thing I had in my car to go with this edit, this this tribute package, was Candle in Wind, because she was our Norma Jean. Yeah, and it absolutely. felt it felt like a good fit. Yeah. So do you think that's why Elton John then? Um, but I think I think once we played, to... lots of people started using it as a sort yeah. of, I think it became um, an anthem almost, didn't it, for her? You know, they were playing that life. version, yeah. and, and I, I don't know whose decision it was to approach mm. to, to re-record it, but um, it was very apt. And then, my love, you got picked up for the X Factor and did the first two seasons. That, that was, was pretty three, three. I did four seasons um, of the tour. 
and then but before that I'd done Pop Idol um, of course yes so actually I, by that point you know you lump all that together I did about six years of um, singing talent shows yeah um, and Pop Idol I did because I knew Simon Fuller through working with him at Smash Hits um, on the Spice Girls and and also Simon Cowell because I'd also worked with him while I was at Smash Hits where he was you know an A&R guy looking after Robson and Jerome and Fine mm. and trying to put you know his A&R roster uh, over to me to see if he could you know wanting covers and coverage um, so I knew mm. those two so I, yes I moved into Pop Idol and then X Factor yeah and that was I mean did it I can't remember did it become was it it was a massive hit overnight wasn't it the X Factor yeah because I think it literally stood in it, it stepped into some very warm Pop, shoes from Pop Idol Pop Idol yeah um yeah. So I think no matter what came back, the appetite was there. You know, whether it had been Pop Idol or X Factor, the appetite yeah. was huge for for that at the time. Um, yeah. But I mean, literally, the first season of Pop Idol was so exciting. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That was so great. That was Will Young, wasn't it? Will Young, Gareth Gates, and yeah. Dinesh. No, it was it was such a great show, and I loved the fact that it was it was kind of cozier, wasn't it? It was cozier. It seemed sort of more real, almost. It was entirely it was entirely authentic in as much yeah. as there was no sort of you know shaping of stories. The, the the one story that came in through the door really it was almost ready made. I suppose was Darius because he'd been so ridiculed on pop stars, the rivals for doing his Britney Spears scales, you know, mm. the over, the over singing. And when he came in, I loved the rehabilitation of him in the eyes of the public. Cause he went from zero to hero, mm. able to kind of um, almost repair the damage that had been done. Cause it is brutal. You know, you can't, you can't underestimate what happens when somebody is thrust into the public attention, mm. public eye, and they just kind of like left, like a like a like a fish on the on, on the shore, that's flapping around, going, "What the hell is this? It's terrifying." And you know, there is a duty of care that I think is absolutely prevalent now, but at the time, possibly wasn't. And I, it felt like I felt very protective towards Darius. I really wanted, I was willing him to do well and to come out of this show with you know his shoulders back and his head held high. And that's what happened. And he's a glorious man. I love him to pieces. Um, we still um, speak from time to time. Mm. I have nothing but warmth and affection for him mm. and Will and Gareth. But you know, you had this this kind of beautiful story with that first season. You had you know Gareth, who looked like looked like a pinup, mm-hmm. couldn't speak, but he could sing like an angel. Oh, his little stutter. The moment when he walked into the the audition room and tried to get his words out. Yeah. You know, that was that was there was the, the nation was willing him. You know, there was mm. so much love and goodwill. Uh, put his way the same with Darius I think people started out laughing and by the end they were celebrating with him he wasn't the mm. joke and then Will of course came from nowhere I remember Will was the very last person to be auditioned and I'd already come across Will because I'd done a boy band uh, search on this morning with Simon Cowell and we put Will Young in the band <laughs> okay really yeah um, and the band came to nothing I mean nothing happened yeah there was it, it, but it did also feature two members of Blue who went on to become Blue. Blue, yeah. Um, and, and Will was obviously madly articulate, beautiful singer, um, 
was able to stand up to, to to Simon and they had this kind of great sort of swordsman moment where they clashed and 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 you just didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And of course, you know, everybody thought Gareth was going to win and then Will did. So you felt like you couldn't miss the next series because mm. you didn't call it. Mm. I remember going into work on the day of the final and you know I'm sat in the back of a taxi and it's all over the radio. And then you look up at billboards, you know, the, and the digital billboards, and it's part of the rolling news. And Anton Deck and I had been asked if we'd go and advise Parliament on how to persuade young people to vote. And it was just all a bit crazy and nuts. And, it, yeah, it, I don't know that there'll be anything as exciting as that because it felt so new. I know it wasn't. There's been talent shows. For, yeah. for us, it felt very exciting. Yeah. And then so what, what actually... Um, happened with you and the X Factor because were you did you resign or what happened? No, um, no, not at all. I mean, no, my contract wasn't renewed. Okay, and having been told that it would be, um, I then found out that it it wasn't going to be. So, yeah. um, and that was that really. I mean, it, it happens a lot in telly, but it was yeah. a big show. Don't I know it? Yeah, well, you do, and yeah. you know, I mean, it hurt a lot at the time, um, but it is, you know. It is what happens, and it's happened. Mm. It, ha- it happened before that, and it's happened since, and, and I dare say it will happen again. Yeah. Um, but that is that's showbiz. Yeah, it is. You're only as good as your last show, or what other people think. Well, it's as good know, as your last show. Decision, and and you know, it's his show. I, I, you know, I forget that. Yeah, but it's kind of you were so much a part of that show. That it just seemed like I remember. I do remember there being an outcry that your your can contract hadn't been renewed, and um, yeah, it just seemed like. And I can't even remember who who came in place of you. Dermot O'Leary. Okay, I'm saying yeah. Okay, so maybe it was something to do with getting a bloke. Um, who yeah, knows? I, I mean, I was certainly certainly not privy to those conversations. Mm, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. It happens. And you know, no one likes a whinger. So I just got on with it. Yeah, it's all you can do. If you can't change it, there's no point in whinging about it. Really not, just, honestly. You know. And you know, it teaches you a lot. It never never you know, just because you're at top of the ratings doesn't mean that your job is secure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that then, you know, ever since I've been um very driven to create my own projects. Just so that no one can buy me from them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, and having more than one string to your bow, it's like you know, I've been there. I've absolutely been there. You know, Trini and I were top of our game, and then suddenly we weren't. And it was like we didn't, we weren't doing anything else. You know, that was it. And it was like part of me was relieved because we worked relentlessly hard. But then, you know, to coin a cliche, so many other door- doors opened. And then we started working all over the world and I started writing and then life changed. And without these kind of big um, disasters, for want of a better word, we don't grow and we don't find other areas that we can we can hone and craft and hopefully become good at. Totally. And I think, you know, sometimes when life puts you in a corner, you have to you have to dig your way out. Um, and what it forced me to do was stop being reactive and be proactive. Yeah. And actually, I am quite a good ideas person. Yeah. And I, you know, so I, I, I'm able to kind of create my own work that, that I kind of devise around, I guess, you know, my strengths. Um, and it, it forced me to work harder for myself. Yeah. And, uh, and have some autonomy. So now I do my podcast, which is my podcast, you know. Yeah, I make it, I write it, I present it, I produce it um, with a company with um, who are great, but the idea is mine and I nurture it because it's that's my baby, you know, the jewellery, my baby. I love mm-hmm. doing it. Um, I work with a brilliant team, um, but it's something that I feel I have some kind of control over. And I think when you put yourself back out there as a jobbing presenter, which is ultimately what I, I am, then you're just at the mercy of somebody else's decision making. Mm. And often it's, you know, you could be doing perfectly well on a show, but then there's a change of guard and every guard wants to change. And yeah, and have their influence. 
And yeah. they've thrown people in because they've got to prove yeah. that they were a good hiring and they've got mm. to show that they can make positive change um, or change. And you get caught up in that. And it's just soul destroying at the time. Um, mm. So actually, I think and, and in a life where we are driven by technology, never more so than in these last 12 months, um, we can't be the masters of our, of our own creation and, and work, work for us. Mm. full-time publishers or broadcasters mm. really enjoyed playing with that um but I totally resonate with what you say you know you have those moments where you're so busy and your life is just you know your diary is full month on month year on year and suddenly it stops and there is mm. that's quite a frightening moment where you go mm. Fuck. well you're so you become so defined by your work and you forget that well I forgot who I was and I think probably that's when my drinking you think so escalated yeah because it was like I almost went into mourning I was like who the fuck am I you know what why that was my identity it was it wasn't Susanna it was it was Trini and Susanna you know I'd walk down the street and people would see me and I'd be on my own or with my kids or something and they'd go oh look there's Trini and Susanna (laughs) you know and Trini was fuck knows where (laughs) um so yeah, it's tough, but also, I mean, I'm sure you feel the same having done that. I mean, now with it, how you you've got a son who's twelve, but for him as a twelve year old, now is the time when he needs you. It's like not when they're younger. I don't think, and even more so now that I mean, my youngest is seventeen and eldest is twenty two, but they they I am so glad I'm around at the moment and not you know traveling all over the world. Well, that's I I think you know when I had Ben. Um, I knew that I'd I'd literally I couldn't I couldn't think of an ambition that remained unfulfilled. Yeah, you know, I my favorite job actually that I ever did in telly was being a travel reporter. It was the most spectacular job in the world. I was paid, you know, to go to you know trek with the gorillas in Uganda, um, to climb Machu and I got to take my dad on that trip. You know, I did amazing things. I rafted through Ethiopia. It was just stunning, right? Wow. And then I did the big Saturday night shows, and I'd hosted Top of the Pops, and I presented on the Brits, and all. I was like, I'm I'm ready to not be the most important person in my world. So when I had Ben, it was, that was it. I was like, he comes first, second, third, fourth, fifth on my list. He's like, he's my everything. And I turned down the opportunity to do breakfast television because I I didn't want to miss the school runs. Mm. And I remember at the time there being this kind of like, you're saying no, I'm "I'm sorry, I'm saying no. Mm. Because walking him to school to now, even now, like, Thinking of that little hand in mine as we yeah. talked every day, I would never trade those times. No. Never, not for any show. I've yeah. done a few shows, and hopefully we'll do a hundred more. But no show is as important as yeah. real life moments. And you're right; he needs me more now than ever before. Yeah. yeah, and they'll get to the point where he'll go, "Yeah, I don't need you, Mum," and that's when they need you even more. Exactly, and I think what's interesting. I mean, you, you maybe you felt different because. I think you you already had children when you went through that that kind of mm. identity crisis when when the phone stops ringing or the booking stops coming in and you go mm. who am I I'm not Trini and Susanna I'm mm. Susanna and you mm. have to discover yourself. Um, I don't know. Did you have kids then? Yeah, I did. I had yeah, all three. Yeah, that's a lot mm. to deal with. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot, but um, you know. Uh, you just kind of get through it. But I was, you know, it was kind of a relief, you know. So it is that thing which you're, you you clearly understand. It's like you, you lose your identity, mm. but then you find your identity as a woman and for me as a mother. And I wasn't really around when they were small. And then, now, you know, since then I've had the luxury and the privilege of watching them turn into adults. And so everything kind of, all worked out in the right way, in the right order for the right reason. And, you know, even drinking alcoholically happened at the right time and for the right reason. And I've learned so much from it and the wisdom that I've learned from that I can pass on to my children and how they approach life and the anxieties and taking it slowly and one day at a time and la la la, it doesn't last, it'll pass. All these things, everything that's thrown at us 
is for a reason. I so believe that. Oh, I completely believe that. And I think the tough times are the biggest lessons. And I, you know, I talk about this a lot on my own podcast, which I would love you to come on, by the way. Except I don't drink. Uh, well, you don't have to. I've oh, okay, fine. Keep totalers on, don't you worry. I have a dark Coke, yeah. Um, I think, you know, we've got to stop calling our, our um, failures, failures. They're not. They're massively educational. They're really important. And we're talking, you know, like, I think if I hadn't had to um, re-identify myself, when I was when I was an anorexic, I, that's how I identified myself. Mm. I'm, and I'm an anorexic. I'm secretly an anorexic. That was my identity. When it got to that moment where, for example, I was, you know, fired from the X Factor and I didn't know who I, you know, like you, I'm going, oh God, I'm Kate off the X Factor. That had become so massive, that show, or Kate off the telly. Um, and I became so, I, I, yeah, your identity is so caught up in your work persona, which is madly un- unhealthy. And you have to then, it, that, if I hadn't been an anorexic and had to re-identify myself from a very negative identity to something slightly more positive, I don't know that I would have been able to get back in the saddle as quickly. That, that yeah. time. So actually, all of those bad moments are great educators and they give you a much tougher skin. I know who I am. And what I learned through that period was uh, I had to work out who I was again. What did I want? What makes my heart sing? You know, walking away from big job offers felt really risky but right so listen mm. to that. even when everybody around you is saying are you sure but you have to remember they're all saying that because they make out of that situation mm. Think about, mm. you're going to make from that situation and what I made was magical memories by not going into that situation by being the mum at home um and I, but don't get me wrong I still worked I just didn't mm. up at three o'clock in the morning and have somebody do all the fun stuff with him that I went on to mm. do but those bad bits give you the muscles and the wisdom and the flex to go out there and and do what's right for you. And it's really hard at the time to understand that when you feel like you're being a bit sort of kicked to the curb, there's 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 power, there's power in that, there's magic in that. Yeah, absolutely. But when you were going through the vulnerable vulnerable times, how did dressing help you? Did you dress to, you know, because now you're very casual as am I I mean I don't give a fuck about what I wear anymore I mean I do a little bit I do a little bit but not so much because I'm more confident because I'm happier but when I wasn't I would dress to represent this this kind of confident successful individual which inside I wasn't did you ever do the same no, in fact, you know, when I went into telly, I felt a bit like Crocodile Dundee had just arrived in the city. <laughs> I mean, I remember sitting, uh, when I was I was working at MTV and they gave me a makeup artist to teach me how to do my own makeup. And I remember her sitting down in the, in the chair and going, so do you pluck your eyebrows? I was like, no, who does that? Mm-hmm. I, mean, like, I literally had no interest. I wore minimal makeup. Uh, I shaved my legs, that was about it never cut my eyebrows, never painted my nails. I mean, it just wasn't, I just wanted to work. I think things, mm. things I, felt, I felt that they were really uninteresting things to do and I had better things to do with my time. Um, and that changed because then I started to see, well, actually, I do look a bit better if I broke my eyebrows. Um, and, and that wonderful makeup artist went on to work with me across my career and she's wonderful, Patsy O'Neill. And then I started to work with stylists and understand how to dress my shape, I guess. Um, and there was there was something really wonderful in that, um, and sh- you know just things like if you don't like yourself, just stick on a pair of bloody spanks. Don't mm. scarf yourself for a week. Just wear spanks for an hour. It's there's mm. <laughs> always a shortcut. Um, I, I I wasn't madly big on clothes um, to begin with, mainly I think because um, I felt so massively criticised for everything that I wore. Really, everyone has an opinion. Yeah. I mean, certainly doing those, like the X Factor, there would there would be literally meetings about my clothes. <gasps> and it would all be from men. Really? So did you did you fight that? What, what, did they ever ask you to wear something which you refused to wear? No, but they would ask to approve what I was wearing. Yeah. God's sake. That makes slightly makes my skin crawl. I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. I was never a shrinking wallflower. I spoke no. for myself. Yeah. You know, ultimately, maybe might be fired to me. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't. 
uh, yeah, I wasn't going to be dressed by committee and certainly no. a bunch of middle-aged white guys. Yeah. And did you ever have um, a wardrobe malfunction when your clothing really let you down? Oh, God, shitloads, yeah. Okay, what was the worst? I think, um, I mean, I've, I literally ran on to this morning and literally as we were going, hello, good morning, welcome. Uh, today I'm joined by blah, blah, blah. My whole dress just fell apart. What? <laughs> literally, I, I was standing in for Holly, I think, and Philip was very gallant in sort of allowing me to literally sit back in the chair while bull, bulldog clips were sort of applied to me. So, yeah, I did a whole show with literally, literally hanging by a thread. <laughs> Oh you can't God. run off and get changed. There's not the time, is there? There's no news break. Yeah. And breaks, not big long enough to run to the dressing room, change, get all your sound packs back on. So just had to kind of muddle through with it. Um, one of the most awful moments, I think, was, and I listened to your Prince Philip story, so it's not quite yeah. off, but it's not far off it. Um, I was at uh, one of the hotels on Park Lane hosting one of those events that you do in the ballrooms there and it was for charity it was for breast cancer mm. care and I was wearing a really beautiful black pencil skirt um that I'd worn on the x factor actually and I think it was a really fancy designer one but it just gave me a really lovely I mean I'm curvy I've always had like an in and out waist yeah I think well wear it you know I was doing I was doing big bums way before they were fashionable yeah. uh, so you know I've got this on and gets to the end of the show and I'm about to say okay this is how much money we've raised and you, they get out one of those big comedy checks you know the yeah big- yeah 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 and I have to invite uh onto the stage to present this Cherie Blair who is at the time the Prime Minister's Prime wife, wife. Yeah. Okay. so I <laughs> <laughs> to the end of a catwalk to make this presentation with her and as I walk down I could just hear the boom go silent as as I pass I hear and all these into I thought god what's happened the back of my skirt completely gone literally gone and I hadn't worn knickers because it was tight what so it had split up the back literally I had literally a whole of my bum cleavage out top to bottom I've got quite a big bum and it's, an, it's, it's all right. You know, I'm not ashamed of it. Didn't really want to put it on display in that moment with that crowd. Could you feel it going? I, I, I kind of fathomed from the crowd reaction what was happening. Cherie was so lovely. She put the fat comedy check behind me <laughs> to cover my arse. And she was a brilliant female um, sister in that moment and, and really helped me out. And I was just like, well, do you know what? Listen, I've literally just shown myself in the most unflattering light. Before we close this check off, can I just ask you all to dig deep and just donate on behalf of my humiliation and lost dignity? Money. <laughs> well done, you. Well done, you. I have that has to be one of the best wardrobe malfunctions I've heard. I, I, I normally I'm so prudish. I would never, never normally not wear um, pants. Yeah, wear like a VPL thong or whatever. You know, one of those yeah. show. Um, but this was, I remember this skirt so well. It was by Lanvin. Lanvin? Lanvin? Yeah, Lanvin, yeah. Um, and it zipped. And it was so figure-hugging. I remember Gorgeous. when I'd worn it on the X Factor, if I had to cross the stage, I literally had to do it really slowly because I could, my legs wouldn't open far enough. The skirt was so tight, but it looked fabulous. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, and it, then it let me down horribly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That is, that is just tremendous. But you pulled it off. You pulled it off. I had to turn it around because it was... Yeah, you, you turned, turned it around. It's just one of those moments where you it, it's the stuff of nightmares. Mm. It's like that nightmare of waking up naked on a train. And I have these horrible nightmares constantly where I'm not ready for a live show. And I'm running around and I'm trying to find everything. And I know that my boobs are going to fall out. And they're not good anymore. I don't want them falling out. Uh, you know, it's all those mad kind of horrible... Do you still have those dreams? Do you still have them? Really? Occasionally. Yeah. Always when I'm running around looking for everybody and I know I should be somewhere and, and I'm not and it's going to take me ages to get there and I'm going to be late and I'm going to let people down. And it's really, really, <sighs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I have, I have one recurring dream only, which like you, I have to be somewhere, I have to get somewhere and I've forgotten where I parked my car. Oh, God, well, that's just real life for me. That's not even a dream. <sighs> 
it's just horrendous. I, I walk around car parks all the time just pressing my key, just waiting for the bike to crash somewhere. And I can go floor to Oh, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. No longer feels like my own some days. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then, of course, you know, beyond those four dreadmore functions, um, I think, I think, you know, I'm so also desperate not to be awkward or perceived as difficult. But on shoots, I'd end up saying yes, just so that I appeared to be easygoing. Yeah. She's so easy to work with, that Kate. She's so easy. Our Kate is so easy to work. She's such a joy. Yeah. yeah. You go, what the hell? I look horrific. <laughs> Why did I say yes to that? <laughs> that happens a lot. Yeah, that happens a lot. Oh, my God. I so, yeah, I'm people pleaser. I'm a terrible people pleaser. So you've travelled a lot. You've been through highs and lows. Has there been a... A comfort blanket for you that sort of stayed with you throughout this it can be anything books really okay because they're a brilliant gateway to somewhere else i'm obsessively i am an obsessive reader as well i am and yeah i really look forward to getting into bed to read my book um and in pre-covid life i've got, I've got my kindle to, I've, on my phone as well so literally the moment i was on and off a, a tube i would just in a quick another quick chapter yeah bookshops are my favorite shops yeah yeah same now like silence what are you reading at the moment um i'm reading so uh, at the moment i'm reading a book called diamonds in the lost and found which is um kind of a memoir um which is really lovely um about a really weird and wonderful childhood i've just read um Shobna Galati's memoir, Remember Me, Discovering My Mother as She Lost Her Memory. And it's such a beautiful book. It's about her her mum having these moments of huge lucidity as she was in the grips of dementia and Shobna furiously writing it all down so that she got to know her mum away from being just a mum in those Mm. stages of life. That was beautiful. Kate, you've met everyone, especially in the music business. Is there anyone whose style has blown you away? So many, but the one that I always go back to because she is so simply stylish. I know who you're going to say. Sade? Oh, no. Uh, no, really? I thought you were going to say Annie Lennox. Also amazing. Yeah. Stylish. But Sade. Sade. Okay. I've so never useful. seen anyone that can do jeans and a white shirt like her. Mm. And to this day, in her 60th year, she yeah. Are remarkably stylish and style, and just a lovely woman. Yeah. I you know I I I was really quite blown away when I met her. Yeah. Um, so many levels. Um, but yeah. All right, my darling. So final question, my angel, angel. Um, what is? Do you have an outfit that you would like to be remembered for? Something that you makes you feel fabulous. Yes. Oh, you do. Okay. I have got next door, and it was one of my dresses. So for five years, I hosted the Strictly Live tours. I don't know if you did the mm-hmm. live tour around the arena. No, I, I, I was out first, so no. Ah, how yeah. dare they? Yeah. <laughs> dare they? Um, so I would, be, I would be the sort of Tess and Claudia on these shows, and I had the most stunning wardrobe. And uh, what's the name of the Australian designer? Is it Rachel Gilbert? Yeah, there's Rachel Gilbert or Rachel Comey. Rachel Gilbert, and it is a okay. red, I literally look like the dancing lady emoji. It's a red, full-length sequin dress that kicks out at the bottom, hugs in all the right places. It's got these beautiful little cap sleeves, and and you can move in it. I mean, it's got a stretch to it, which is quite uh, everything else that you wear in the in that sort of evening couture vibe is very corseted and structured. And this is just gloriously lovely. Um, so actually, it's probably the dress I'd like to be buried in. Oh, nice! So it could be a birthday suit and a burial suit. Why not? <laughs> Hello, <laughs> two for the price of one. All right, darling. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go, but I tell you, we've been talking for a long time. I could keep talking to you for another three hours. Well, it's good. Have you come and sit on White Wine Question Time? If I would love to do it, I would really. You're, you're just heaven. I, I love you. But I, and I just want to say thanks to you because um, 12 years ago, I don't know if you'll even remember this, but we were on the same flight going out to New York. Yes. On 60th. Yes. Well, I, I remember just being 
and I've, I, I've been with Patrick Cox and David Furnish, and I've been hired to host the event for ITV. Uh, but you guys were all such great friends and you were so inclusive of me on the flight. And you and Trini, when you found out I was pregnant, in, literally strong-armed me into some support socks because you said, you're going to get thrombosis and you need to... And you just looked after me so beautifully. So it's been, it was um, a great act of kindness and um, never forgotten. Oh, darling. No, well, you are heaven. And read my lips... I will see you soon, okay? And I would love to come and do your podcast, please. Love that too. All right, lots of love. Thanks, Kate. I loved speaking to her and can't wait to come on her podcast. You can check out Kate's jewellery range by going to bbbijou.com. Find the link in our show notes. Right, before we go, here's a little treat. A track from our house band duo's brand new Gig In Your Garden album. It's called Zorbaba and you'll very quickly see why. And Zorba. I love it. Find Gig in Your Garden by Duo on our show notes or by going to duoguitarmusic.com or at Duo Guitar Music on their socials. Right, before we go, you can find us on our website, mywardmal.com. Follow us at mywardmal on our socials. And if you have a moment, please give us a five star rating and review us on your chosen podcast platform. 
that's it. Thanks again to Kate and to Duo. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Catch up soon. Until then, my wardrobe is officially closed. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.